Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 20 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I've discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for hanging out with us today, my friend. Whether this is your first episode or your 20th episode, I really appreciate you joining the Wildlands Expedition today. Didi, our canine expedition leader, is pretty damn excited today. He's in one of those moods where he's been running around, jumping up on the couch, booping people on the leg while they're at the dinner table. Sounds like bad manners, but he's just super excited. He knows what game we're going to be covering today, and when I'm excited, he's excited. So be sure to remain still with your hand out, palm up, when he comes around to give you his obligatory sniffing. He's probably going to blow through these really quick though today so we can get this expedition on the road. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about a game that is very near and dear to me personally, and I suspect many of you listening. It serves as a prequel to one of the most popular RPGs of all time, and at the time, it was only available on Sony's little handheld, the PlayStation Portable. Today, we're going to be diving into Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII. I'm anticipating this episode being a lot longer than normal. Once I finished my show notes and script, I knew this one was going to be a bit of work to pull together, so I hope you all enjoy it. Crisis Core was one of the main reasons I decided to pick up a PlayStation Portable way back in the day. Full disclosure, I am a self-proclaimed Final Fantasy VII fanboy for a myriad of reasons, and it took no time at all to convince myself to save up some cash and get my hands on a PSP and a copy of this game. Having played through Final Fantasy VII probably a dozen times up to that point in my life, I was very eager for a new tale in the Final Fantasy VII universe. I was a little skeptical when I learned this game was a prequel, though. I was worried that the source material wouldn't be respected, or some new characters would take away from the old, or the story wouldn't be able to live up to my personal expectations. While I was skeptical, I was equally intrigued when I learned that this game wouldn't be a turn-based RPG like the original. Crisis Core was considered an action RPG, which typically meant that battles you take part in usually happen in real time, and you had movement control of your character during these enemy encounters. Up to that point in my gaming career, I don't think I ever played an action RPG before, and the idea really excited me. So after putting money aside to make the purchase, I headed to my local GameStop and plunked down the cash. Little did I know that this game, this experience, would leave a long-lasting impression on my life. So with that said, it goes without saying that I'm just a little bit excited for the Crisis Core remaster that's dropping in less than two weeks on December 13th, 2022. Not only am I excited for the opportunity to play this game with updated visuals and an enhanced take on the combat system, I'm most excited for the fact that now this game isn't locked onto the Sony PlayStation Portable. It'll be out on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PlayStation 5, Xbox Series Everything, and even the Nintendo Switch. A new generation of gamers will be able to experience this game, and I cannot wait for that. There aren't a ton of games out there that I would call must-plays given how each of us all have our tastes and whatever else that excites us, but Crisis Core gets my official must-play stamp of approval. I guess I'm spoiling my feelings about this game before we get into the episode, but I adore this game. 
I think the story is great, the gameplay is a fun time, and it leaves a lasting impression if you let it. Now, that's not to say Crisis Core doesn't have its faults, though. This is certainly not a perfect game, and it has some shortfalls, but if you're looking for a competent game in the Final Fantasy VII compilation, or just a fun action RPG to play through, you've come to the right place. We'll discuss my feelings and experiences, both good and bad, when we get into the episode. I'd like to think that I did a really good job putting this episode together, so if you've played this game before, I hope you get those nostalgic feelings that I get when I think about this game, and if you've never played this game before, I hope I make a good case as to why you should. Speaking of never playing this game before, let me touch on spoilers. To really give you a sense of how this game made me feel when I was younger, and even today, I want to talk about the story, which means I'll be spoiling a pretty good chunk of the game's bigger moments, specifically the ending. I'll be dividing this podcast into two parts. A spoiler-free discussion about presentation, a very basic story setup, and a look at the gameplay. The second part of the episode is where I'll dive deeper into parts of the story. I know Final Fantasy VII has been out for about 25 years now, and Crisis Core is going on 15, but I want to respect the fact that you may not have played either game, or maybe it's been a very long time since you've done so and potentially forgotten a few things. Fun fact about me, I have yet to play through Final Fantasy VI. I know, I know, send your hate mail to our social media platforms, but I would hate for someone to spoil that game for me even though it's been out for so long. So when the Crisis Core spoilers happen, I'll give you ample warning if you want to bail on the podcast at that point. Alright, before we get into Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII, I need to get some plugs out of the way, and I like to use this time to give everyone a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands. This is where I like to go over what's going on with me, how the podcast itself is doing, what I'm working on, what might be coming up when it comes to future episodes, and whatever else is on my mind. If none of that sounds like anything you want to waste your time on, no worries. You can skip ahead about five to seven minutes and you should land on the Crisis Core conversation. Or you can check out the game's show description and there should be timestamps loaded so you can get where you need to go and not have to screw around with your podcasting app. So if you listened to last week's episode, you may have caught that I've been on vacation from my full-time adult job and it has been glorious to say the least. While I've made it a point to relax here and there, much of my time has been spent on personal projects and things around the house. I just recently gutted my home office and added some new shelving in order to accommodate my slowly expanding physical video game collection. In case you don't know, I'm trying to collect as much as I can for the PlayStation Portable. I'd love to one day have a complete collection of North American released PSP games and PSP movies. At the moment, I have 225 games and 94 movies, along with 8 PSP consoles, including the PSP Go. And while I'm not trying for any other full sets, I am starting to get my hands on more PlayStation 2 games since I was lucky enough to find a silver PS2 Slim for fairly cheap. So in the last few weeks, my game collection has started to overflow. Now that things are more organized, it's looking pretty good in this little space of mine. With the holidays fast approaching, the major Black Friday deals done, and the Crisis Core remaster right around the corner, I'll probably be toning my game hunting down a bit. (laughs) If my wife is listening to this, she probably just rolled her eyes pretty hard at that. 
I certainly don't go nuts with spending or anything, but every time I say I'm going to take a step back from game hunting, I usually come home with something a couple days later. I mean it this time, baby, and all of our listeners heard me say that, they can help hold me accountable. Usually when I pick up anything new, I'll occasionally post it over on our social media platforms, so that's a good segue into talking about those really quick. If you're on social media, and who isn't nowadays, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching at RetroWildlands. I like to use social to not just update you on the podcast itself, but try to add some gaming goodness to your timelines and your feeds. While I sometimes give insight into what games I'm playing or what episodes might be coming down the line here on the podcast itself, social media is where you can really get the inside scoop. Saturday or Sunday is when I'll be announcing what episode is up next if you don't want to wait. I also put a call out for comments and questions that day if you wanted to interact with the podcast at all. If you have a question or comment about the game itself being talked about, a memory you want to share, a question you want to ask me, feel free to comment on those posts and I'll read and respond to them in that episode's intro. They can be gaming-related questions or comments, but they certainly don't have to be. I wanted to give anyone in our small communities a chance to interact with the show if they wanted. It's something other podcasts I listen to do, and I've always appreciated that. Beyond that, I've been making small video trailers on the game that I'll be covering, and I'll post that short video over on social media as well, and that's typically done on the weekends too. I have the world's shittiest capture card, and I've been using that to make some short videos out of my own gameplay, and it's been pretty fun. So you should check those out and let me know what you think. And lastly, our social media platforms are the best way to get a hold of me directly. If you want to chat with me or give me some feedback on the show, feel free to slide into my DMs, as the kids say. You could even feel free to let me know what games you think I should cover on the show, too. If I have the means to play it or acquire it, I'll certainly give it a chance if it's a game that means something special to you. The podcast itself is doing fairly well. Downloads over the course of the last few weeks have been trending upwards, which is awesome to see. I can tell there's a few of you out there that have been discovering the show and just ripping through some of the older episodes, which is just fantastic. I really appreciate everyone who's given my little project a chance. Which reminds me, I'm fixing to re-record a new trailer for the podcast. Our very first episode, episode zero, serves as a five-minute preview of the podcast for anyone looking to see what we're all about. Since I've been experimenting with new forms of audio editing and just feel more comfortable overall, I think our trailer needs a new coat of paint. I'm hoping by the time you're hearing this, I'll have recorded and edited a new trailer, so if you have anyone out there who's even remotely into gaming or just wants a new podcast to check out, feel free to recommend that trailer to all of your pals. I'm hoping it does a good job of summarizing what the Retro Wildlands is all about. So beyond all that, what have I been playing? Now that Crisis Core is off my plate until the remaster drops, I've been pulled back to the Super Nintendo. Over the weekend, I fired up Sunset Riders. It's a run-and-gun, side-scrolling type of game that's a port of an old arcade game. It's almost like Contra and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Turtles in Time had a baby. It's a game modeled after the American Wild West. It's really fun to play, but goddamn is it hard. I will say, I'm pretty impressed with it overall, and I haven't been able to put it down, even though I consistently, consistently keep dying in this game. 
I'm hoping to beat this one if I can put my reps in, and I'm pretty confident it'll get an episode of the podcast, I just don't know when that's going to be. You should look this one up. Chances are you may have seen this one in the wild once or twice before. I've also been playing New Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe on my wife's Nintendo Switch a bit lately with her. That one's been pretty fun. I love that we can play the game together at the same time. It's been pretty fun, challenging, and at times it tests the strength of our marriage, but it's been a blast to play through. Since I've played it so sporadically, I don't have enough thoughts on the game to make an episode out of that, but I'd prioritize it if anyone is interested. Other than that, I recently picked up Tomb Raider on the original PlayStation this past weekend at my new local retro gaming store. I haven't replayed much of it yet, but when I fired it up, I was immediately reminded of how awesome this game was when I would play it with my stepdad when I was little. I will definitely be going back to that one soon. It doesn't visually hold up very well, but I am still eager to give it another go and talk about what made that game special to me when I was growing up. Okay, I think that's more than enough rambling from me. It's time to get to the reason you're all here. It's time to talk about Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for the PlayStation Portable. Released on September 13th, 2007 in Japan, then March 25th, 2008 in North America, we play as Zack Fair, a member of the paramilitary group known as Soldier. Zack always has a positive attitude, and he's always ready to embark on the next mission. Always striving to better himself, Zack one day dreams of becoming a hero. When Genesis, a soldier first class, winds up missing in action, Zack is tasked with finding him. Along the way, Zack will discover some sinister secrets involving Genesis and his origins, and how it all ties in with his soldier mentor, Angeal Hewley, and another member of Soldier named Sephiroth. So take a seat by the fire, my friends. Make sure you have your sword nearby, lace up your combat boots, and grab a handful of materia. Allow me to regale you with Zack's journey to become a hero. In order for Zack to be successful and one day realize his vision, he'll need to learn what it means to embrace his dreams. To be a hero, you need to have dreams. And you need to have honor. the hundreds and hundreds of video games that I've had the pleasure of playing, Final Fantasy VII will forever be my favorite, and I do not say this lightly. It has nothing to do with the gameplay or the pacing, and I would argue that there may be better games out there, especially in the Final Fantasy series as a whole, but Final Fantasy VII has the deepest nostalgic ties for me. It was a game that really spoke to me when it came to its story and its characters, too. I enjoyed the idea that most every character you played as or interacted with had a deeper side to them than just what you saw on the surface. 
I played this game through to completion multiple times during my adolescence, and I found a connection with the characters. I'm absolutely going to get into all the nitty-gritty of Final Fantasy VII in its own episode down the line, but the strong feelings I had for Final Fantasy VII made it guaranteed that when Crisis Core was dropped on the PlayStation Portable, I knew I had to play it, even if it meant buying Sony's handheld console to be able to do it. When I found out that Crisis Core was going to be a prequel game, I was a little skeptical at first. I don't know how you feel about the topic, but prequels scare the crap out of me, especially if it's a prequel to a game or a movie that I don't feel like I need. Truth be told, I never felt like Final Fantasy VII needed a prequel. When you do a prequel, you run the risk of rewriting characters and story moments in such a way that the magic is removed from them. I argue that having some mystery surrounding events or characters can enhance the overall experience. Leave a little to the audience's imagination, let us come to our own conclusions, make the story our own. But when I realized what this Final Fantasy VII prequel would be focused on, I was legitimately intrigued. I thought, maybe they can expand on my favorite video game without tarnishing its legacy or my own personal feelings about it. Maybe they can pull it off and give me what I've always wanted. Another chance to dive deep into this game world and be part of it again. You know, go back to my happy place. So, did they pull it off? Let's start to get into this game and pull back a few of its layers, shall we? Now real quick, a word on spoilers. I will be spoiling some of the game's later story sequences, and I'll be talking about the game's ending in detail. That won't happen until later into the podcast, though, and I'll give ample warning before I start spoiling things. If you've never played Crisis Core or Final Fantasy VII before, and don't want parts of the story spoiled for you, I implore you to skip that part of the podcast and play these games fresh. While the story moments themselves are probably common knowledge to anyone remotely familiar with the series at this point, the experience itself is something I'd hate to spoil for you if you don't want it ruined. So again, I'll give plenty of warning when the story spoilers are about to happen. I'll be dividing this podcast into two parts, a spoiler-free discussion about presentation, a very basic story setup, and a look at the gameplay. The second part of the episode is where I'll be diving deeper into parts of the story. Sound good? Alright, enough dilly-dallying and shilly-shallying, let's get to it. So, what is this game? Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII is the prequel to Final Fantasy VII. It's considered an action role-playing game. Basically, it has all the RPG elements like level progression and stat building, but the gameplay style of an action game. We play as Zack Fair, an operative in the paramilitary force known as Soldier. This military force belongs to the Shinra Electric Power Company, and consists of highly advanced super-soldiers who have advanced strength and speed. Because of their strength, Soldier is usually reserved for operations that require more of a firm hand as opposed to regular peacekeeping tactics. When we begin the game, Zack is a second-class soldier, and he's trying to work his way up to first-class. Zack has demonstrated exceptional combat abilities up to this point, and has risen through the soldier ranks rather quickly. Zack has also been guided and supported by his mentor, Angeal Hewley, a soldier first class who has taken Zack under his wing. Pretty early into the game itself, Angeal recommends Zack for first class promotion to Director of Soldier Lazard. 
Zack is extremely excited about the prospect of becoming first, but more than that, this gets him closer to his personal dream. What is your dream? To become first, is it? No. To become a hero. Ah, good. Unattainable dreams are the best kind. Thanks. More so a hero to the people, much like how Soldier First Class Sephiroth is. Zack won't have to wait long for his chance to be promoted after his recommendation, though. Another Soldier First Class has gone missing, and Zack is tasked to investigate. That soldier's name is Genesis, and the circumstances around his disappearance start to point towards a willing desertion. Genesis was on mission in the far-off country of Wutai when he disappeared. At this point in the story, Shinra and Wutai are at war with each other. The company sends Zack and Angeal to Wutai in order to finish the work that Genesis began and put an end to the war once and for all. While the mission is considered a success and Zack performs amicably, Angeal disappears near the end of the mission and is nowhere to be found. While no one really knows what happened to Angeal, Sephiroth is very quick to determine that Angeal has deserted Soldier just like Genesis did. Zack doesn't want to hear any of this. Angeal very early on instills a sense of duty and honor into Zack, so him up and abandoning Shinra doesn't make any sense. He often tells Zack that if he wants to become a hero one day, he needs to embrace his dreams and above all else, protect his honor. While this notion doesn't make much sense to Zack in the very beginning, he'll slowly understand what these words mean as the game drives to its conclusion. After the mission in Wutai, all Zack can do is return to his duties and focus on his work. He needs to put what happened to Genesis and Angeal out of his mind for now. However, a couple months later, Zack would be assigned a new mission. Director Lazar tasked Zack with heading to the town of Benora, where Genesis grew up, in order to find clues to his whereabouts. Lazard already sent a squad out to Benora, but contact with them has been lost. It's at this point the game more or less truly begins when it comes to the story. It's up to Zack and us as the player to figure out what happened to Genesis and Angeal and bring them back to Soldier if we can. However, not all is as it seems. As Zack continues on mission, he'll discover secrets that Shinra would have preferred to have kept buried. Now it's not all doom and gloom, however. Crisis Core has a wonderful cast of characters that Zack will meet and build strong bonds with as the story goes on. Many characters are new to the Final Fantasy VII universe, but some characters will make their return from the original game. The game does a pretty good job of driving character development for all the major players, and while there certainly could have been more of that development, I felt like most everyone you interact with gets good screen time in the spotlight. This couldn't be more true of the game's main gameplay mechanic, the digital mind wave, but we'll get to that in a little bit. I will say while the story as a whole is pretty cohesive and you'll generally understand what it is that you're supposed to be doing, some character motivation can be kind of hard to interpret sometimes. Not only will we as the player have this problem, Zack himself has a hard time understanding what's going on at times. It can be a little frustrating here and there, but it's nothing that's going to hinder the overall story experience. 
Even if we miss a detail here or there, by the time the story wraps up and the credits roll, everything will have been tied up in a pretty neat bow, and just about every plot thread will have seen a conclusion. Now, when it comes to the story, Crisis Core does fall short on how it delivers it in some spots. You'll have your typical story set pieces that you watch here and there. These can be either fully voice acted, or they'll just be text only and you'll have to read through as you watch your characters on screen. I'm assuming this was more a measure to reduce the data on that little PSP disc, since that little guy can only hold 1.8 gigs of data. So to be able to cram more story into the game, Crisis Core has an email inbox system. Yes, while you're out there trying to save the world and become a hero, get ready to check your email pretty often. Email is usually sent to Zack at specific parts of the story from either major or even minor characters. These emails tend to add to the story by giving Zack another perspective on an event or a way to build a relationship with a character that's not entirely relevant to the story. This game is all about the relationships that Zack builds up on his journey, but the inbox system does require you to read a bunch of text to get this experience. You'll even get updates from Shinra High Command regarding background information on the Wutai conflict or where Shinra is focusing the company's efforts. It's pretty cool for what it is and really makes you feel like a member of the company. But I personally don't get as much enjoyment from reading files or documents like I used to when I was a younger gamer. And again, I'm sure this was all done as a way to save space on that little disc, but still, it's kind of a smaller nitpick that I have. So that's the basic story setup, and I don't want to get too much more into things than that. Later in the gameplay section, I may talk about some of the specific characters you meet and how they impact gameplay. But as far as the plot of the game itself goes, that should cover the basics and the first hour or so of your time playing Crisis Core. Once we get to the spoiler section, I'll get into much more detail. But when it comes to the story as a whole, you technically don't need to have played Final Fantasy VII to understand what's happening in Crisis Core. However, I feel like the game does assume that you have played Final Fantasy VII because it really doesn't go into the finer details of the world itself. You won't miss anything story-wise if you haven't played the first game, but you'll miss out on some of the finer details. I thought about this long and hard one day, and if you have a choice, I would recommend you play Final Fantasy VII, then play Crisis Core. I think the major plot twists in Final Fantasy VII won't have nearly the impact if you play Crisis Core first, but that's just my opinion. Alright, moving on from the story, I want to touch on the game's presentation. Visually speaking, Crisis Core looks gorgeous, even on that little Sony handheld. The graphics on offer here are a cross between PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3 quality. That might be some high praise for the time, but I mean it. Crisis Core looks incredible. Gone are the short, stumpy 3D polygon character models of the original PlayStation. Characters in Crisis Core look really good and have a fair amount of detail. The main cast of characters, of course, got the best treatment visually, but even the NPCs look good. Solid details are present too, such as hair moving around, and the major characters having pretty convincing facial animations, even if some of them are a little exaggerated. What always stood out to me though in the visuals department was the look of the Buster Sword, the gigantic sword that Cloud wields in the original game. 
Angeal is in possession of the sword when the story begins, and when we see it on screen, it looks stunning. The hilt of the sword is an ornate gold design, and the handle of the sword itself looks like it's wrapped in a red leather. The actual blade portion of the sword is much more pronounced. You can better see the darker side of the blade taper into the edged portion. While I was never really crazy about the gold coloring on the hilt, I love the detail that they put into this sword. It probably goes without saying, but the Buster Sword is obviously my favorite video game weapon. So much so that I found a replica of it and bought it and mounted it to my home office wall. It's used specifically for cosplaying, but the detail is really good. It's made out of a hardened foam material, and it's pretty awesome to hold. I just recently put up a picture of my game shelves on social media, and you can see the Buster Sword hanging on the wall if you want to check it out. Aside from the visual details on the characters, backgrounds look pretty good too. Final Fantasy VII used pre-rendered backgrounds, whereas Crisis Core relies more on 3D models. While it doesn't look like much now, back when I played this game for the first time, seeing the game like this blew my mind. It was the very first time that I would see places like Midgar and the church in the slums in such detail. Final Fantasy VII did a great job of world building visually, and other parts of world building happen through dialogue. Now we can actually see the details of the Midgar slums and just how spectacular the Shinra building is. I can't find the figures anywhere online offhand, but my assumption is that Crisis Core operates at a fixed 30 frames per second. I honestly can't think of a time where my PSP ever bogged down, even during hectic battle situations. There's one mission that you can partake in that allows 9 enemies on screen at once, and with them attacking you and casting magic, I never had a performance issue. It was pretty incredible. Zack's movements as he runs in and out of battle are pretty smooth and the game does a great job with in-game effects such as magic. Your fire and thunder spells, for instance, not only look visually appealing, the sound design around their usage just makes them feel weighty and punchy, if that makes sense. No bottle rockets or sparklers here, we're dealing with real fireworks that you spend real good money on. If I had to knock the game's visual presentation at all, there are environments that you'll be visiting on optional missions that do get reused and recycled quite often, and those optional mission locations don't have much detail as a whole. With the exception of a forest-type outdoor area, you'll be exploring vast desert locations, several underground caves, and inside the Shinra headquarters itself. Each of these areas gets really hard to look at over and over again, and they tend to lose their visual appeal pretty fast, but any of the main areas visited in the main story generally retain their luster. To complete the compliment sandwich here, we can't forget to bring up the full motion video cutscenes. Or would they be considered computer-generated image cutscenes? FMV, CGI, whatever, they just look pretty damn good. The opening of Crisis Core has Zack on top of a Shinra train, just like the opening of Final Fantasy VII, and it looks awesome with a fantastic musical score to complement the whole scene. These FMV cutscenes are usually saved for the bigger story moments, and they're always great to look at. There's times that I'll be watching them, and I'll forget that I'm playing this game on a 17-year-old handheld system, especially when the game reaches its final act. Before we move on to some of the gameplay aspects of Crisis Core, I did want to give a shout out to the music. 
While there aren't nearly as many standout tracks like Final Fantasy VII, Crisis Core's soundtrack is a mixture of remixed music from the original game and some original tracks. The soundtrack as a whole uses just enough of the original game's music to keep itself grounded in the first game, but enough new tracks to give Crisis Core its own identity. Because Final Fantasy VII's soundtrack was so beloved and well done, I don't think Crisis Core's soundtrack will ever achieve that level of greatness by default. But still, the music here is very well done. The remixed versions of original tracks sound fantastic, and some of the original battle music is remixed with a stellar electric guitar. Battle music overall in Crisis Core is fun to listen to, which is good because you're going to be in battle a lot in this game. One of my favorite tracks is the remixed version of Fight On, the boss music from the first game. It's a mixture of piano and electric guitar that's just perfect for getting you in the mood for a fight. I'll definitely be including some of that amazing track later in the episode, so hold tight for that gem. Aside from the battle themes, the soundtrack can be very delicate and even elegant to emphasize a tender moment or laid back and passive as you're working your way through an area. The soundtrack is perfect for this game, and I enjoy listening to it anytime I play. Alright, so we've talked a bit about the story setup, the graphical presentation, and a bit about the game's musical score. Arguably the best thing about Crisis Core, and by far my favorite thing, is the gameplay. Crisis Core is a robust game. According to the website How Long to Beat, you're looking to take about 18 and a half hours to finish just the main story content alone. If you want to complete the story and all the extra mission content, you're looking at about 30 hours. And if you're looking to consider the game complete and check off everything the game has to offer, you're looking at about 78 hours. So what is it that's going to be making up most of that time? A little bit of exploration, but mostly it's going to be combat. And it's a pretty good thing that combat in this game is pretty fun for the most part. So since it's my favorite part of Crisis Core, let's talk about the combat and use that to check out some of the other features of this game. When the game first begins and we get to watch the amazing opening where Zack enters by train, we're given control of Zack and put in battle with some Shinra infantrymen. When a battle commences, we enter combat mode. Activating combat mode. <laughs> Be prepared to hear that a lot, by the way, in the next 30 hours or so. Combat will happen in the space that you're currently occupying, and generally you'll have a decent amount of space to move around in. Now right off the bat, if you've played the original Final Fantasy VII, you'll notice that combat is completely different. Battle is no longer turn-based, where you have to wait for your turn to act. You have the ability to move Zack all around the battlefield, and you can take actions pretty quickly. Zack comes equipped with his soldier-issued sword, and that will be the main tool that he uses to attack his enemies. On the lower right-hand side of the screen, you'll have a list of commands that you can take. Your attack command is always going to be the first on the list and selected by default. Zack will automatically target the closest enemy to him, and you'll see a little blue circle on that enemy that he's currently got his sights on. If you press the X button with the attack command selected, Zack will automatically run towards that enemy and swing his sword. If he connects, damage is dealt. You can press your attack button four times in a row, and if uninterrupted, Zack will hit the enemy for four consecutive hits, each dealing just a little bit more damage than the last. Pretty simple. 
Now, your enemies aren't just going to stand around and wait for you to wail on them. They'll be maneuvering around the battlefield as well, and will more than likely try to attack you while you're busy swinging your sword around. Zack has the ability to dodge by pressing the square button. It's a pretty nimble move, and if you time it correctly, you can avoid an enemy's attack completely this way. If dodging is something that isn't going to cut it, and you're going to have no choice but to take some damage, you can press the triangle button, which will have Zack plant his feet and put his sword out in front of him in a blocking motion. If he's struck from the front while defending, he'll take significantly less damage. Just don't expect to take reduced damage if your enemy hits you from behind, though. In this first fight, we'll notice that we've been equipped with a couple Materia Orbs. Fyraga, Thundaga, and Blizzaga. I think I sounded those right. I sound like a voodoo shaman. Fyaga, Thundaga, Blizzaga. <laughs> okay, anyway. Materia can serve a few different purposes, but the green ones are the magic materia that allows us to cast spells at the cost of MP, or magic points. All we need to do in battle is select the spell we want out of the options listed on the right-hand side of our screen, and press the X button to cast. Casting time is very short, and we can spam a volley of magic spells as long as we have the MP to spend. Another Materia Orb that we have in this battle gives the Assault Twister ability. Using AP, or Ability Points, we can use this ability that makes Zack swing his sword around in a 360 degree motion to attack all enemies around him after about a half a second wind-up animation. Sweet! Finding and equipping various Materia to add abilities to our toolkit is going to be a very important part of combat and the overall gameplay experience but we'll touch a bit more on Materia later. However we decide to do it, we dispatch the remaining enemies and the battle is over. Got him! Conflict resolved. After the battle is over, Angeal tells Zack to ascend the stairs at the end of the area. Zack heads up the stairs as multiple Midgar civilians are running in the opposite direction. Something sure has them spooked. As soon as Zack gets to the top of the area and it opens up, he spots the reason for all the chaos. A gigantic purple behemoth turns its intense yellow eyes towards Zack. It rears back and roars, its razor-sharp teeth clearly visible as it swings its spiked tail in Zack's direction. Without hesitation, Zack draws his sword and prepares for a fight. Activating combat mode. The behemoth is huge and will not go down easy. Right off the bat, we try a couple of sword strikes. Not only does our sword do little physical damage, the behemoth swings its tail and Zack gets thrown back, taking damage in the process. Deciding to circle around to the backside of the monster, we learn something that's going to be extremely valuable for the rest of the game. Hitting an enemy from behind will land a guaranteed critical hit that does increased damage. We land a four-hit combo on the Behemoth, and we're feeling pretty good right about now. The Behemoth pretty clearly telegraphs his moves as long as we're paying attention, so when we notice he's about to swing his tail again, we dodge and his tail sails right over our heads. Nice. The battle drags on for a little while until our attention is drawn to the upper left-hand corner of the screen. During our battles, a sort of slot machine has been spinning this whole time. What on earth is that? 
There are three slots in the slot machine, and we can see images of people's faces being spun. Next to those images are numbers. Just what does it all mean? As we're fighting, the first image lands on Angeal's face, and the third image lands on his face as well. As soon as this happens, the gameplay freezes and we get an announcement. Modulating phase. At this point, the entire screen fills with the slot machine, and we watch as the middle image slowly spins to a stop. The final image is Angeal's face again. With all three slots now showing Angeal, a power surge is triggered. Power surge. Gameplay resumes and Zack prepares an attack called Rush Assault. A cutscene plays where Angeal calls out to Zack that he wants him to prove his honor. Zack unleashes his fists on the behemoth, inflicting damage with every hit. He ends the move with a massive diving attack dealing pretty decent damage. It's enough to take the behemoth down and we watch as it falls over and disappears from the battlefield. Oh yeah! Conflict resolved. And that was a very brief example of how battle works in Crisis Core. It generally feels pretty good to be in combat and controls are pretty snappy. You can't manually rotate the camera around, but that's okay. The camera generally gives you a good view of the playing field. I will say, since the game will automatically lock on to the enemy that's closest to Zack, it's hard to pick a different target in the heat of the moment. If there was a way to change targets, I never figured that out. All in all though, there's a lot of stuff to unpack when it comes to battle. The different types of materia that you can use, equipment that you can equip, and that weird-ass slot machine thing in the upper left-hand corner, but we'll be here all day if we really dive into each of these. Let's start with the materia system first, talk about the materia fusion system after that, and see where we go from there. If you're even somewhat intrigued by the idea of crafting your own items and potentially getting overpowered very quickly, you'll love the Materia Fusion system. Okay class, let's talk Materia. I will try to make this as entertaining and engaging as possible. So Materia are orbs that you can equip on Zack that will grant him additional abilities. Some Materia you'll find in the wild, they may be dropped from enemies, you can even buy some at stores, or you can create them through the Materia Fusion mechanic. Green Materia are for adding magic abilities such as Fire, Ice, and Thunder. You can also add healing and defensive abilities such as Cure or Barrier. Green Materia are your bread and butter abilities and can be pretty versatile. Just make sure that you have enough magic points to be able to cast your spells. Now Yellow Materia, or Command Materia, grants Zack physical abilities. Assault Twister, like we just used, will let Zack spin his sword around to attack enemies all around him. There's also a Steel Materia that allows Zack to potentially take an item from an enemy. The Jump Materia will allow Zack to jump straight up and out of danger, then come crashing down on the enemy dealing damage. You'll need to make sure that you have ability points to use these kinds of materia. Purple materia, or independent materia, are used to boost a specific stat of Zack's, like his strength for instance, or grant Zack a passive ability boost or an additional skill. One example is the dual cast materia. Having it equipped will allow Zack to cast two magic spells in quick succession. Another type of materia is the blue materia, or support materia. 
One example is the status ward materia. Equipping this along with, uh, let's say, poison materia will give Zack a 50% resistance to being poisoned himself. The last type of materia that you can find are red materia or summon materia. This will allow Zack to summon a powerful creature to deal a massive attack upon his enemies in battle, but it's not as simple as being able to summon them at will. You'll need the slot machine to work in your favor for this one. So without getting too deep into the weeds here, it's pretty obvious that the materia system is very robust. There are a ton of materia to discover in this game, and the ones that I mentioned as examples are just a very small offering of what's in the game. At maximum, Zack will be able to equip up to six materia orbs, so the customization options available to you are pretty vast. You can create a purely offensive build that overloads Zack with offensive spells and abilities. You can create a defensive build that focuses Zack's abilities on damage reduction and healing. You can create a balance between the two, or you can equip nothing but independent materia and just drive Zack's stats up and rely on nothing but your swordsmanship to get the job done. The possibilities are endless, and that's one of the things that makes this game so replayable and so enjoyable. The Materia Fusion ability is something you won't have immediate access to, but once it opens up to you, your endless Materia possibilities will become even endless-er. As you play, you'll acquire SP, or Soldier Points. You'll mainly get SP by defeating enemies in battle. Using SP, you're able to take two Materia in your possession and combine them to make a new Materia Orb. Materia Fusion is a pretty convoluted game mechanic, but I mean that in a good way. While the system will let you know what your result will be before you pull the trigger on a fusion, getting your hands on a Materia Fusion guide will take a lot of the guesswork away, especially if you're looking to make something specific. That means look online for a guide, or if you're like myself and happen to have one or know where to find one, the Strategy Guide has a beautiful Materia Fusion guide. If you have the right materia on your hands, you can create some pretty powerful stuff. You can potentially make yourself more powerful than you're probably meant to be at that point in the story if you really put the effort forth. Now, one thing I forgot to mention about materia is that some materia may also increase one of Zack's stats if he equips it. For example, you may come across a fire materia that says Magic Plus One next to the name. Equipping it will give Zack the ability to cast fire magic, but he'll also enjoy a plus one boost to his magic stat. Fusing different materia and even the same kinds of materia together can increase that bonus stat as well. As an example, fusing a fire materia with a plus four magic stat and another fire materia with a plus two magic stat together will yield a new fire materia, but the magic stat will be plus five. And to make this system even more complicated and awesome, later in the game you can add items in your inventory to the fusion process as well, which can directly impact that bonus stat even further. I had an Assault Twister materia that I was able to get an attack plus 34 on. Equipping that materia made Zack pretty damn strong for where I was at in the game at that point. <sighs> Alright, so that is a very quick look into the wonderful world of Materia. 
When I would play Crisis Core, I didn't tend to use the Materia Fusion system until later in the game. I usually found a combination of Materia that I would find in the wild and make those work well enough until I started to hit a wall in my character progression. Once that happened, I usually had enough Materia saved up that I could start making some meaningful fusions and really let loose. While Materia Fusion isn't really required to finish the game, it's something you'll want to use if you want to break your limits and tackle some of the game's harder content. Throughout the game, you'll only ever play as Zack himself. While the story content is what it is, the game's extra mission content is what you'll want to work through in order to get the most out of Crisis Core from both a gameplay standpoint and even a character development one. You see, the game really focuses on the fact that Zack is a soldier and works for the company. You can focus on just the story and play the game through end to end, but Shinra will assign extra missions for Zack to complete that will give him an opportunity to find powerful items and materia, and give him the opportunity to level himself up and get stronger overall. And while the story itself is going to see Zack grow as a character throughout the 18 or so hours you experience it, I argue that the real growth happens as you take on mission after mission and grow stronger as a soldier. So missions can be accessed at any save point in the game. All told, there are 300 of them to partake in. Some will be made available as you complete other missions, some open up as you progress through the story, and some are only accessible by talking to the right person in the game world. When you go to select a mission, you're given a briefing on what the mission is and maybe some backstory to justify what it is that you're doing. Maybe there's Wutai troops in an area that you need to wipe out before they attack Shinra HQ. Maybe there's monsters that have run amok in the Midgar slums that you have to clear out. While the mission briefings are pretty varied, missions themselves generally follow the same formula. Enter an area, find the one big bad somewhere on the playing field, defeat it, claim victory. While roaming around a mission area, you may even come across chests with items in them, so you'll want to make it a point to explore as you go. Missions themselves generally don't take a lot of time to complete, which makes them perfect for a handheld game. Every now and then I would find myself with a few minutes to kill, and I would boot up a quick mission to complete, and then I'd put the game down again. It was perfect. Plus, you really do feel as though you're growing alongside Zack, becoming a more powerful soldier in the process. The more missions you complete, and the more items and materia that you find, the more you can customize Zack and give yourself a near infinite amount of flexibility. I would generally get to a point in the story where I would stop and complete as many side missions as I possibly could before going back to the main storyline. From my own experience, I've always felt like the story difficulty was just hard enough that doing some side missions balanced things out, but if you did as many side missions as you could before progressing, you were almost a bit overpowered in some of these sections. But that's the beauty of it though, you absolutely get out of this game what you put into this game. Okay, one more big thing I wanted to talk about before we started diving into spoiler territory. Let's go back and talk about that slot machine that's always spinning when we're in combat. This thing is called the Digital Mind Wave, and it is by far one of my favorite things about this entire game. After talking to some gamers that have played Crisis Core before, I get the sense that you either like the Digital Mind Wave or you don't. But let's unpack it a bit. This thing is more than just a gimmick. 
It's an important part of combat, but it's a major part of the story as well, and what makes Crisis Core the amazing game that it is. So the Digital Mind Wave, or the DMW, is a visual representation of Zack's thoughts and feelings. The game doesn't specifically come right out and say this, but it's pretty easy to pick up on. While Soldier doesn't specifically ask its members to be overly emotional when it comes to judgment or decision making, they do encourage members to draw upon their emotions and past experiences and use them to heighten their strength or hone their skills through focus. What does this mean for the gameplay experience? Certain DMW results will grant Zack temporary enhancements, allow him to perform a special attack, or even allow Zack to level up. Here's how this thing works, and I'll do my best to make this section as entertaining as possible as well. So the DMW spins with the silhouettes of the people that Zack has either met or knows so far in the story. Starting off, the DMW has the silhouettes of Angeal and Sephiroth. Early on, Zack will meet Sung of the Turks, and he'll be added to the DMW, for instance. Zack will also meet up with Aerith from the original Final Fantasy VII, and she'll be added to the DMW as well. In battle, the DMW will spin. The leftmost slot will stop first, then the rightmost. If the images are the same, the gameplay stops and the DMW enters modulating phase. We get to watch as the final image in the middle falls into place. If all three images match, the DMW invokes a power surge within Zack. Basically, he'll perform a limit break ability that's specific to whichever character is showing on the screen. If the DMW is showing three Sephiroth portraits, Zack will perform a multi-hit attack called Octaslash. If three silhouettes of Aerith are showing, Zack will cast the Healing Wave ability that will fully heal him, restore his magic and ability points, and grant him temporary invincibility to all attacks. Neat. But it gets even cooler from there. Since the DMW is a representation of Zack's thoughts and emotions, there's a chance that Zack will recall a memory involving the individual who's showing on the DMW. Best part, it's generally a memory or story moment that you won't be able to see otherwise. Here's an example. Sometimes Zack will recall a memory with Angeal where they're both surrounded by monsters and the situation looks pretty grim. The banter between the two of them is pretty comical and then the memory ends. It's just something small that further explores the bond between Zack and Angeal and those little moments coming from the DMW further solidify character development in a fantastic way. Sometimes during a modulating phase, still images of past gameplay will pop on screen as if Zack is recalling those moments in time and harnessing how he may have felt in those moments. What I like about the DMW concept is that it's kind of something that we all experience in our own lives now and again. I mean, how many times have you thought back to a moment in your life to draw inspiration from or give yourself the confidence boost that you needed? Maybe your motivation is lacking, but recalling that time you achieved something awesome is the boost you need to get back on track. That's really what the DMW is for Zack in a lot of ways. You never know when you're going to enter a modulating phase, and I find that it tends to pop up when I least expect it, or right when I need it to turn the tide of battle in my favor. Now, the one thing about the DMW that I think most people don't care much for is the fact that it is the only way to level up Zack. 
In most role-playing games, if you kill enough enemies or complete enough tasks, you'll gain experience points. Gain enough, and your character levels up, becoming stronger. Crisis Core has no obvious leveling mechanic like this. On the DMW, next to the character silhouettes, you'll see numbers that are also spinning. When you enter a modulating phase, after all three silhouettes stop spinning, the numbers will stop right after that. For Zack to gain a level, he needs to land all sevens. Well, that's pretty dumb, you might be wondering to yourself. Why leave leveling to random chance? The thing is, from what I've gathered and researched online, this is the only thing about the DMW that is not completely random. Apparently, Zack does gain experience points when he defeats enemies in the game, but that value is hidden. Once you reach so many, only then will there be a chance that all sevens appear. I assume the reason for this is so the player can't just stand around and battle and let the slot machine spin and hit sevens over and over again. You still have to fight through some enemies. I will say, I never felt like the game held back leveling up on me or anything like that. Every time I gained a level, I felt like it popped up right at the right time. If you ever feel like you're not leveling up on time, it's possible there might be a clog in the pipe. There was one instance where I'd been playing the game for a few hours and completing a couple dozen side missions, and I hadn't leveled up in a while. On my next mission, I leveled up three times before that little mission was over. So there is a bit of tug and pull, I guess, but still, as odd as the system is, I think it works just fine. It's all very interesting to me when I stop and think about what we've covered so far. While it's no real secret, the Shinra Electric Power Company are not the good guys in the Final Fantasy VII universe, but Zack is part of their ranks, and happily so. Even though Shinra is evil on the outside, we get to see it from within. There's people that truly believe in the unified world that Shinra wants to build, and believes that they're making an actual difference for people, and Zack is one of those people. It was hard not to buy into the idea of working with them and doing all of these missions for them. As a player, I felt a sense of growing pride as I accomplished mission after mission. I wanted to rank up just as much as Zack did. Through all of this, Zack becomes stronger and wiser as a character, and so do we as players. It really all comes together pretty well, and that's always been a major sticking point for me about this game. It was never about just experiencing a story from the outside looking in. Crisis Core really puts you in the shoes of Zack. His successes are your successes, his failures are your failures, you celebrate with him, and you grieve with him. While I probably wouldn't say this game is a masterpiece when it comes to its storytelling, it does master the ability to make me feel connected to it and invested in the characters. Not many games can do that today. Especially when using a slot machine to symbolize character emotion, you know? Alright my friends, it is time. While there's a ton more about the game to cover and things I know I left out, I want to switch gears and dive into the game's story. This is the point where I'm going to spoil the shit out of this game and spoil a bit of Final Fantasy VII too in the process. So if you've never played either game before and don't want the finer points of the game's story spoiled for you, you have until the music stops to bail. If you do end up stopping the podcast here, thank you very much for sticking with us up to this point. Now go find a way to play Final Fantasy VII and Crisis Core, even if that means playing the remake or the remaster. I'd love to hear what you think about them. 
Otherwise, if you're sticking around until the end, strap in. It's time to talk about the finer points of Zack Fair's journey and give you all an insight into why it is that Crisis Core means so much to me. While the combat and gameplay of Crisis Core are arguably the best things about the game, my absolute favorite thing about this game, above all else, is Zack Fair himself, and the journey he takes in order to become the hero he always wanted to be. It's such a simple premise when you think about it, but it's the type of person that Zack is in the beginning of the game, and the person Zack is when the game concludes, that always fascinates me. Many heroes or potential heroes in games, films, or books generally go through a period of growth. They tend to get hit with a hardship, and then they come out stronger and wiser once they get through it all. And while that's generally what happens to Zack, the journey itself and the characters he forms bonds with are what really stand out to me. So with that, I want to share some of the more prominent story moments from Zack's perspective and touch on how he changes throughout the story. We'll end the episode with the game's amazing conclusion. There's no way I can talk about it and really make you understand how I felt after I finished the game. Plus, I think it would be kind of cool to just recant this awesome story. I have been dying to talk to someone about how this game has made me feel, so I hope you all stick with me. Alright, let's get to it. From the beginning to even the very end of the game, Zack has always been the type of person that's wanted to make something of his life. Born in the remote town of Gungaga, Zack didn't want to live a content lifestyle all the way out in the boonies. He had dreams of adventure, and dreams of making a difference. He decided he wanted to leave his hometown and head to Midgar in order to join Shinra, become a member of Soldier, and rise to the rank of Soldier First Class. He left his home pretty early in his life to see this dream through. Up to this point in the episode, we know that he met Angeal and was taken under his wing, but what we don't know is what happened after Angeal disappeared at the end of the Wutai operation. Several months after returning from Wutai, Director Lazar tasked Zack with heading to Benora, the hometown of Genesis, in order to look for clues to his whereabouts. Zack doesn't go alone, however. Sung of the Turks heads out with Zack. This is the point in the story where Sung is added to Zack's digital mindwave. The two of them venture out to Benora, but with Zack being as inexperienced as he is at this point in the story, and not really having a clue as to why Genesis and Angeal decided to desert Soldier, he is completely unprepared for what he's about to experience. Once on site, Zack and Sung discover the town is empty and fresh graves dot the town's outskirts. 
Genesis purged the town of all occupants, with the exception of one person. Zack learns that Angeal also grew up in Menorah and has known Genesis since they were kids. He finds Angeal's home and within it, the sole survivor. Jillian Hewley, Angeal's mother. The two of them talk and Zack notices Angeal's buster sword is leaning against a back wall. Jillian shares with Zack that it was Angeal's father who forged the buster sword when Angeal joined Soldier. Angeal's father had to borrow money to have the sword made and would go on to work as much as he possibly could to repay that debt. Unfortunately, he ended up falling ill and passing away during this time. Angeal carries the buster sword around in memory of his father and the honor that it represented. I think it's the main reason why Angeal didn't use the buster sword very often. He doesn't want it to be tarnished with wear and tear and prefers to preserve it due to the symbolism. After Zack and Jillian speak to each other, Zack would soon return to the house to find Jillian dead and with Angeal standing over her body with his buster sword in hand. Zack assumes, like we do as the player, that Angeal killed his own mother for some reason. Zack angrily lashes out at his former mentor, not understanding what's happening. We won't find out until much later in the story, but the situation here is much more complicated. It turns out that Jillian was actually a scientist working for Shinra, and she had been working on experiments involving Genova, an extraterrestrial entity that had appeared on the planet thousands of years earlier. She was working with Dr. Hollander, another Shinra scientist on an experiment called Project G, or Project Jillian. This project saw the birth of both Genesis and Angeal, both of whom were gifted with superhuman capabilities. We'll also learn that Genesis is actually very imperfect and starts to physically degrade. When Genesis came to Benora, it was with the hopes that he could use Jillian to find a way to stop his body from degrading and cure himself. Deciding not to help Genesis, Jillian opts to take her own life. On his way out of Benora, Zack confronts Genesis. Emotionally charged and unsure as to what is going on, Zack calls out to Genesis and asks him what happened to his dreams and where his honor was. Genesis responds with saying that he's a monster and he doesn't have any more dreams or honor. Extending his arm out, Genesis reveals a single black wing from his back and immediately flies away, leaving Zack behind to wonder what it all means. Soldier doesn't mean monster as far as Zack was concerned, but what's really going on here? He also didn't understand where Angeal fit into it all. Zack still holds Angeal in high regard as a friend and mentor and continues to believe that there's still good in him somewhere. Not long after the Benora incident, Zack finally accomplishes the one thing he's been working so hard for. He's given a promotion to Soldier First Class. However, there's no excitement to be had and no celebration to hold. It was an unceremonious occasion and probably done more out of necessity than Zack actually earning it. At least that's how I always felt like Zack felt at that moment. This was something he and us as the player had worked so hard for, but now that we made it, it felt very incomplete. There was just so much going on and so many questions that had no answers. At this point in the story, Shinra decides to label Genesis and Angeal as killed in action. However, behind the scenes, they plan to eliminate Genesis and anyone supporting him. 
and that unfortunately includes Angeal. Knowing that Zack has such an emotional attachment to Angeal and worried those emotions would get in the way of the mission, Shinra decides not to utilize Zack for this task. It's not like Zack gets a chance to dwell on this though. Genesis mounts an attack on Shinra headquarters and it's up to Zack and Sephiroth to defend HQ and drive Genesis and his forces out of the building and out of the Midgar streets. It's during this battle that Shinra deploys the Turks, and Zack happens across one member of the Turks that needs saving. Her name is Cisne, and she and Zack form an immediate bond. And with that bond comes another face added to Zack's digital mindwave. Zack learns that Angeal has been sighted within Midgar, specifically one of the Mako reactors, so he goes to confront him. Along the way, Zack learns more about Angeal's birth and how his old mentor is different. When Zack confronts Angeal, he finds his old mentor more or less playing the villain now. But what Zack doesn't understand, and what I never really understood as the player, is why? This is not at all who Angeal is. Angeal is a good person who speaks of nothing but honor, duty, and doing the right thing. Why is he acting this way? When Zack tries to call him on this, Angeal lashes out at Zack, causing him to fall through the reactor floor and down to the slums below. Zack lands in a church in the Sector 5 slums, and it's here he meets Aerith for the first time. Zack, being the type of guy that he is, immediately tries to dial up the charm and see if he can convince Aerith to go out on a date with him. Now, I feel like everyone who knows Aerith as a character has an opinion on her. You either love her character, or you hate it. I know my wife absolutely hates Aerith and thought she was the most annoying person on the planet when I was playing through the Final Fantasy VII Remake. But I've always thought that Aerith and Zack's personalities gelled really well. Both of them are generally positive people, almost annoyingly so at times, so seeing them interact with each other always brought a slight smile to my face. Zack quickly falls head over heels for Aerith, but Aerith will take some time to woo. Before too long though, Zack receives a call back to action as Genesis launches another attack on Shinra HQ. As Zack makes his way back to headquarters, Angeal stops him and asks Zack for his help. When Zack asks for Angeal to help him understand where his mind is at right now, all Angeal can say is that it feels like his mind is in a fog with everything he's learned about himself and his origins. But no matter what happens, Angeal means to protect and uphold his honor. As long as he has the Buster Sword, he can do that. Despite everything that's happened up to this point, Zack agrees to help Angeal and the two of them head towards the Shinra building. Although themes of honor are repeated pretty regularly in the story up to this point, I always felt like this moment is where it really started to click for Zack and for me as the player. Angeal may not know what's going on with Genesis, or himself for that matter, and he's very unsure how he should be acting right now. One thing remains, and that's his immovable devotion to maintain his honor. That really started to speak to me, not just in the game, but as a person. After thwarting Genesis for a second time, Angeal provides a tip about the whereabouts of Genesis and Dr. Hollander. This will see Zack, Sung, and a handful of Shinra infantrymen head towards the town of Medeoheim, a remote mountain village. Right off the bat, the mission gets off to a bad start as the helicopter they take in is shot down. 
Zack and his party are forced to walk the rest of the way to Medeoheim, but even this doesn't deter Zack. He uses the chance to get to know his colleagues a bit more, and it's where we learn that one of the infantrymen in Zack's team is none other than Cloud Strife. Having played the original Final Fantasy VII, this reveal didn't surprise me all that much, but it was awesome to me that Zack and Cloud met like this, and so early into Zack's story. Zack and Cloud became friends from what I remember of the original game, but I was always curious how that bond was formed. Now we get to see it a bit. Zack learns that Cloud is a country boy just like him, and the two of them quickly gravitate towards each other. I smiled like a kid during this exchange, and seeing Cloud's silhouette added to the DMW just made me giddy. It was just so cool getting a glimpse into the past like this. While I've been worried throughout the story that this prequel would somehow sully the memory of the original game, I was yet to see anything that made me think the developers were screwing around and not respecting the source material. At this point, the story was on fire, and I loved it. And then, it happened. The moment that changed Zack forever. As Zack progressed deeper into Medeoheim, he finally confronts Genesis and Dr. Hollander. After Dr. Hollander runs off with Cloud and Sung in pursuit, Zack and Genesis do battle. Zack ultimately comes out on top, but later discovers the fight was nothing more than a distraction. He comes across an unconscious Sung and Cloud. The one responsible? None other than Angeal. Zack finally learns the twisted origins of Angeal and learns that he was born out of an experiment to see if his body could take on the cells and powers of Genova. Where Genesis was seen as a failed experiment, Angeal adapted Genova's cells perfectly. But Angeal saw himself as nothing more than a monster and struggled to come to grips with his own existence. While Genesis, with nothing but destruction and death on his mind when he made his own revelation, Angeal only wanted that one thing. To keep his honor intact. In Angeal's mind, there was only one way to accomplish this. He forced Zack into battle, knowing that Zack had finally grown strong enough to best him. Once the battle is over and Angeal is defeated, Zack kneels by his mentor and friend. As Angeal lay dying, he gives Zack the Buster Sword. With his dying breath, Angeal tells Zack to protect his honor always. Zack, you have my thanks. This is for you. Protect your honor always. This scene was always a hard one for me to watch because all of the emotions that were happening. Zack, who just struck down someone he cares so deeply about, realized that this was really happening. Angeal wasn't coming back to Soldier. Things weren't going to be the way they were before. Zack struggles to keep his tears at bay as he lets Angeal's final words sink in. He holds the Buster Sword close to him as rain starts to fall and the scene fades to black. Zack grieves the loss of Angeal and he falls deep into despair for a bit. Zack turns to Aerith for comfort and there's a brief scene that plays out showing Aerith holding Zack from behind as Zack finally lets out the tears that he's been holding back. 
It was a very powerful moment for both Aerith and Zack, and this helped give Zack the strength he needed to heal and keep moving forward. After a period of time, Zack finally gets back to work. He uses the Buster Sword as a sort of symbol of everything he chooses to embody now. He takes Angeal's last words to heart and chooses to remain honorable and pass along everything that Angeal stood for to the next generation of Shinra infantrymen and soldiers. He tells them to embrace their dreams and protect their honor no matter what. It's also here that Zack continues to encourage Cloud by telling him to hang in there if he wants to be a member of Soldier someday. After some time passes, Genesis is able to rebuild his forces after acquiring the good Dr. Hollander again. With Genesis' forces being sighted all around the world now, Zack makes the decision to return to Midgar and to return to Aerith in order to protect her. During this time, we'll see Zack bond even further with Aerith, going so far as to build her a flower cart so she can sell flowers all around Midgar. This section, while fun from a story standpoint, was a little tedious, but I personally took the tedium for granted when I realized what was coming next in the story. It was Zack and Sephiroth's fateful mission to Cloud's hometown of Nibelheim. There was something wrong with the Mako reactor there, and monsters were showing up around the reactor's vicinity. What's worse, members of Soldier were disappearing around the area. Anyone who's played Final Fantasy VII knows the significance of the Nibelheim incident. In that game, while Cloud originally has a twisted version of events he recants for the player initially, it's not until later in the game that we learn what really happened in Nibelheim, and how Zack himself fits into it all. Now, in Crisis Core, we get to experience this right from Zack's perspective. At one point, I was extremely excited for this new perspective. It was around this point in my first playthrough of the game that I more or less stopped doing side quests and focused on finishing the story. But I was also dreading what was going to come to pass. Knowing Zack's fate, how were the events going to play out? Little did I know, I was not going to be prepared for this game's epic conclusion. Knowing that he probably won't be back to Midgar for a long while, Zack tells Sung to look after Aerith while he's gone. Zack, Sephiroth, and a couple Shinra infantrymen, which included Cloud, set off to Nibelheim. Once there, they are led to the reactor by a young Tifa Lockhart. Throughout the journey, Cloud hides his identity from Tifa, but through subtle dialogue and email interactions, we learn that Tifa is still wondering whatever happened to Cloud since he left town to join Soldier. I always thought it was warm and heartfelt knowing that Tifa never stopped thinking about him. Once Zack and Sephiroth enter the reactor, they uncover some gruesome experimentations. Mako-infused monsters. Sephiroth comments that all members of Soldier are infused with a bit of Mako energy, but only just a touch. They are still considered human when it's all said and done. These creatures that they found, on the other hand, were something different. As Zack starts to ask Sephiroth more pointed questions about this process, something snaps in Sephiroth's mind. With everything he and Zack have learned regarding Genesis and Angeal's origins, Sephiroth never considered if he himself was actually an experiment as well. Well, not until this moment, anyway. Almost on cue, Genesis appears in the reactor and further prods Sephiroth, helping him realize that he is, in fact, a monster just like him. 
Seven days later, everything changed. Zack wakes up to find Nibelheim engulfed in flames. Upon investigation, he realizes that this was the work of Sephiroth himself, a man that Zack had once idolized as a hero. Confronting Sephiroth at the Mako reactor, it was clear that the man that was once Sephiroth was gone, and all that was left was a crazed madman. Having learned of his own dark origins and realizing he too was born from an experiment, Sephiroth now vowed to see the world in ruin. Zack and Sephiroth drew down on each other and a battle commenced. Even though Zack has grown considerably as a soldier first class at this point, he was no match for Sephiroth and was quickly defeated. As Sephiroth made his escape, it was Cloud who was able to find a way to defeat Sephiroth. After being impaled, Cloud was able to find the strength he needed to fling Sephiroth off the side of the reactor's platform and down into the abyss below. Both Zack and Cloud's wounds were pretty deep and both of them fell unconscious. At this point, Shinra scientist Hojo would come across them and decide to collect them both to use them in one of his experiments. Hojo exposed Zack and Cloud to an extreme amount of Mako energy, as well as some of Genova's genetic cells. Since Zack was already a member of Soldier and already exposed to Mako, the experiment had no effect on him. Cloud also didn't seem to work out as an experiment, so in the end, Hojo decided to lock Zack and Cloud away within a mansion in Nibelheim for four years. After about four years had elapsed, Zack has a hallucination of Angeal and somehow manages to wake up out of the chemically induced stasis that he was in. Even though him and Cloud have been locked away in suspended animation for that length of time, Zack was doing pretty well physically. Cloud, on the other hand, was in very bad shape. His Mako exposure was too intense and he developed a sort of Mako addiction, so his body was going through a massive withdrawal. The Genova cells injected in him did manage to take though. While Zack was now free, he wasn't about to leave Cloud behind. With Cloud unable to move on his own, Zack got him a fresh pair of clothes, which turned out to be a soldier first class uniform, and took Cloud with him as they made their escape out of Nibelheim. Zack only had one destination in mind, though. He wanted to return to Midgar. He wanted to return to Aerith. The road to Midgar would be full of peril, though. Genesis was hot on Zack's trail, and Shinra had dispatched their army and even the Turks to track him and Cloud down. Now, given how long this episode has been going, I'm going to elect to skip a few parts here, but basically, Zack is able to evade the Shinra army and the Turks a little while longer, enough for him to confront Genesis one more time and finally see him defeated. Shortly after all of this, it's revealed to Zack just how long it was that he had been kept away in captivity. Realizing he had been imprisoned for four years, and that Aerith had written him 89 letters during this time, Zack was more determined than ever to return to Midgar to be with his love. However, it was not meant to be. At long last, the Shinra army finally caught up with Zack and Cloud. Hiding Cloud just out of sight, Zack steps out to confront Shinra. The sheer amount of enemies staring down at Zack was almost unreal. There were hundreds of infantrymen, all with their sights set on our hero.
Boy, oh boy. The price of freedom is steep. He places his forehead on the base of the Buster Sword and prepares for what he knows will be his final battle. <laughs> Embrace your dreams. And whatever happens, protect your honor. As soldier! Come and get it! The cutscene ends and the screen goes black. When the image comes back, we're given control of Zack and the fight for his life is on. Activating combat mode. The battle takes place on the edge of a cliff overlooking the city of Midgar. So close and yet so far. Multiple Shinra troops are on the battlefield with Zack and many more are watching on the hills and cliffs behind them. Helicopters are in the air and they're actively shooting at Zack along with the infantrymen on the ground. Being forced to play through this battle was extremely heart-wrenching for me, and I'm sure many of you listening who have made it to this point in the game. At the end of Final Fantasy VII, we learn that Zack is fated to die in this battle, and that everything we've done up to this point is coming to a head. As I was playing Crisis Core with this knowledge, I put it out of my mind. Zack was alive and well, and I was able to play as him and grow with him. Once the game put me in this final battle and allowed me to fight off the Shinra troops like this, I couldn't help but give myself hope. I had accomplished so much as Zack in my playthrough, and I was pretty powerful. I had some great materia and equipment at my disposal, and I really felt like I was truly a soldier first class. One by one I would strike down enemy after enemy, but every time I struck an enemy down, more would take its place. It was okay though, because I figured their numbers were limited and all I had to do was hold out until there were no more left. Just the idea that I might be able to make it out of this alive, even if it meant changing the story, drove me. I'd grown so close to Zack after all this time playing as him, and I wanted him so badly to reunite with Aerith and Midgar. So just like Zack, I kept fighting and fighting. Every now and then the enemy would get in a hit. Their numbers were just too great, but with my quick reflexes, I was able to heal and press on. As the battle raged on and I started to take more and more damage, the digital mind wave started to act up. Out of nowhere, a modulating phase started. Modulating phase. Instead of two like images already aligned, the DMW faded and showed me quick snippets of Cisne, Sephiroth, and Sung. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but I could tell Zack was thinking about his close friend, his comrade, and his once revered hero. This moment ended with Cisne saying that she had to go now, and the DMW faded back on screen. The DMW itself sounded all wrong, sounded broken. Images of Cisne, Sephiroth, and Sung all lined up, but they faded to white as if they were erased from the DMW altogether. After this, we were thrust back into battle. I remember my mouth slowly hanging open when I saw this. Zack really is going to die at the end of this, isn't he? This is him clinging to the memory of those he loves. No, no way, I thought. We can still make it through this. Somehow, there has to be a way, so I continued to fight on. 
As the DMW spun, it sounded even more broken than before, and it even sounded like it was short-circuiting. Angeal and Cloud's silhouette landed on either side of the DMW and started to fade to white, but it was Aerith's image that still remained. After Angeal and Cloud faded away, all that was left was her now. As the battle raged on, finally the screen went to black and the music started to fade. The sounds of gunfire and metal upon metal could be heard as the battle raged on. The scene opens back up with Zack on one knee at the base of the cliff, barely any fight left in him. Three Shinra infantrymen approach Zack as he slowly gets to his feet. It was at this point I realized that Zack's fate was sealed, and Zack himself knew this too. As he stands back up, it takes all of his remaining strength to lift the Buster Sword. One more fight. One more chance to get back to her. We're given control of Zack one final time as the battle continues on. Activating combat mode. Zack is clearly wounded bad as he can barely move around the battlefield now. Attacking with his sword is very slow. The three enemies circling around Zack are almost toying with him at this point, but we continue to fight on with everything we have left. But in the end, it's not enough. A shortcut scene plays, and we watch from Zack's eyes as he's gunned down by a hail of gunfire. Collapsing to the ground, the DMW enters its final modulating phase. Images of Aerith and memories of her fly across the screen. This is it. This is the end of the road. Modulating phase. Hello? Don't worry, that's right, Tom. Wanna hear? But work's not scary at all. Will I see you again? The screen fades to white, and we're shown Aerith, who is busy tending to flowers in the church. Rain starts to fall, and Aerith looks to the sky through the hole in the roof that Zack once left. We already know what's about to happen, but then the game shows it to us. She senses Zack dying and knows that he's not going to make it back to her. When we return to Zack, we're shown that he's been left on the cliffside to die. Bloody and defeated, Zack looks up at the sky as the rain falls down on him. Cloud makes his way to Zack, finally regaining enough of himself to find a way to Zack's side. As Angeal did for him, Zack's final act is to pass the Buster Sword on to Cloud. He tells Cloud to take it and live for the both of them. With the Buster Sword, Cloud would be Zack's living legacy. As he takes the Buster Sword, Cloud recalls what Zack always said to him. Embrace your dreams. If you want to be a hero, you need to have dreams and honor. The rest of the game's ending plays out beautifully and is a touching tribute to Zack as a character as we see a montage of him through Cloud's eyes. As Cloud leaves Zack atop the cliff, 
he makes his way to Midgar. Zack eventually passes on and is welcomed into the life stream by Angeal himself. And that's it. That's more or less the story of Crisis Core. So, why did I spend all this time telling you all of that? I know it's not my usual MO here in the Retro Wildlands, but it's simple. I adore the story in this game, and I love how Zack grows as a character throughout this entire journey. But more than anything, the sheer emotion of it all gets me, even today. Over the many years I've played video games, there's been many characters that have resonated with me in one way or another. The real good ones have shaped me into the person that I am today. Zack Fair is one of those characters for me. When I step back and look at Genesis and Zack, both men wanted to become a hero in some capacity or whatever it was that meant hero to them. Genesis felt as though he was entitled and tried to achieve his status by proving himself superior to others. Zack's take on this journey was more of an internal one. The only person he strived to be better than was himself. It's easy to see why Zack is liked by so many. Those within the game world like Cloud and Aerith, and those in real life like myself. It really added to the journey that we took with Zack as we went through Crisis Core. And even though most of us playing this game knew he was fated to die in the end, his death was graceful, it was honorable. While Zack may have died, it's the lessons he learned from his mentor and then chose to pass on to others that will endure. Zack began his journey as someone unsure of himself and how he would leave a mark on this world. By the end, he learned that having dreams worth fighting for and never compromising your personal honor is how you make your mark. And what's more, you have to be willing to pass that along to others as well. That's what I hope I can do with my own life, and I hope all of you listening can do with yours. Embrace your dreams, and no matter what happens, Protect your honor. I swear I'm not crying. You're the one that's crying. <laughs> this has been episode 20 of the Retro Wildlands Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII for the PlayStation Portable. Thank you very much for tuning in to the show today. I really appreciate you making the time to check us out today. This was definitely a long one, but I hope it was entertaining and I did Crisis Core some well-deserved justice. After I finished playing the game for the first time way back when, I remember chilling out in my living room in silence and having a good think. There are a lot of things in your life that you'll be exposed to or come across that'll leave an impression, and Crisis Core has always left a huge one on me. Even if that impression isn't as profound on you as it was me, I hope it means something to you too. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. That's the beauty of video games, my friends. There's something for all of us out there that hits just right. 
If you like the show, please consider subscribing to it on your podcasting platform. This will make sure anytime a new episode goes out, you'll be notified. Also consider leaving us a good review or rating on your podcasting platform if you're able to. While those sorts of things will certainly make me feel good and boost my ego, it's one of the best ways to support the show. Higher review scores help circulate the podcast around, and I would love to see how big you and I can grow this project. If you really like the show and think we might have something here, consider spreading the word about the Retro Wildlands to your friends or family. Better yet, spread the word to your local radio DJ. If you're one of those few people who still listen to regular radio, call in the next time they run one of those contests for concert tickets. Not only will you have a chance to win a sweet prize, you can tell them about the Retro Wildlands. I actually used to be a radio DJ way back in the day, and it does get a little lonely in the DJ booth sometimes while you're playing music you've heard a million times before. Help them out by letting them know that the Retro Wildlands is here for them. Don't forget to check us out on social media too if you haven't already. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching at Retro Wildlands. You can get updates about the show over there and enjoy some gaming goodness on your timelines and feeds. Plus, social media is the best way to get a hold of me directly, so if you want to give me any feedback about the show, pick my brain about anything, or just bullshit for a little bit, shoot me a message or interact with our posts. I tend to reveal what next week's episode is going to be over the weekends, and also give people the opportunity to interact with the podcast directly by leaving comments or questions that I'll respond to in the show's intro the following week. So if that's something that interests you, throw us a follow and be on the lookout. So what's coming up next week? Now that Crisis Core is off my plate, I think I need to go back to something a little simpler and a little less emotionally draining. I did mention in the intro to this show that I've been playing Sunset Riders for the Super Nintendo, and I'll probably make an episode out of that gem at some point, but other than that, I don't really have another quick game on my radar. We'll just have to see what happens in the next few days. A few people that I've been talking to on social media and over on Discord have mentioned Kirby Superstar to me, so that one has my attention now. If it's not that or Sunset Riders, it's probably going to be something completely different. It's really just going to depend on what I'm in the mood for. You can either check us out on social media this weekend to see, or tune in next Thursday. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. (laughs) 